Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Axiom Catalyst podcast on rare diseases. Today, we are privileged to be joined by Dr. Han Fan to talk about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. She's a member of the Pediatric Advisory Board at the FDA and the Director of Rare Disease Research Center, where she is the principal investigator overseeing ongoing studies in neuromuscular patients. We'll be discussing her experience with diagnosing and treating children with Duchenne, the therapies that have been approved, some of the challenges faced by innovators in this space of late, and their impact on the community, as well as the exciting innovations on the horizon. When you first have a positive diagnosis of a Duchenne patient or suspect a positive diagnosis, it can be often the most difficult conversation that you must have with the patient or carer in this case. What could you speak to this experience, please? What is like for the caregiver? Please talk us through this emotional journey. Any conversations you have with the family in the context that their child has a condition that is life-limiting and that they will eventually lose the ability to walk is, of course, always challenging. And that's in the case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. One of our challenge is to not only to get the diagnosis across, to have the family understand it, but also to also understand the genetic aspect of it. Now, because of the internet and what is out there in the World Wide Web, there is a substantial information that a lot of the family have already read and looked at prior coming to you or to the clinic. So it makes it a lot easier at times when they come with already some understanding of it. So you can spend other times to talk about what to expect and what are the care and what are the therapeutic options that are available to their child. So it's really helpful that they do have some form of readings or education, self-educating prior to come to clinic. You know, that's not always the case because they didn't want to read anything that is not accurate and they want to hear it from the physician's own wordings and mouth. And so in those instances, you do have to thoroughly go through the diagnosis, what to expect and, and whatnot. So it is always challenging. In some of our multidisciplinary clinic, we also have social worker as well as genetic counselors who then would have the prior discussion with the family, providing supports, providing supporting groups to the family and resources that will in some ways alleviate some of the unknowns and uncertainties as the family navigate the, the unknown for their unforeseeable future. Well, thank you, Dr. Pan. So I think what you're describing is that this process of getting diagnosed is a rather lengthy process. Could you uh, please speak to this experience? How often are patients misdiagnosed or what are the biggest hurdles to getting the right diagnosis? Of course. In any rare diseases, a lot of the families and patients would oftentimes go under what we call the diagnosis odyssey. It truly is a journey in which they first recognize a symptom. They then trying to figure out who should they bring this concern up to. And depending on who they would bring this up to, whether they've been trained or they have heard about the conditions, they may not even know dead in the right directions. So typically, it takes a good year, if not more, to make the diagnosis of any rare condition. Some 
would even say two to three years. In the case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a lot of the symptoms, if you're a, an observant hypervigilant parent or pediatrician, you should be able to see some of the earlier signs as early as less than a year of age. But as the condition progressed, the child would also grow as well, somatic growth. So they will grow. And a lot of the signs and symptoms that you see at a much younger age may not be as apparent as it is in the older age group. So a lot of times pediatricians or even family physicians are would say, well, let's just watch him for a little bit and see how, how it goes and see how much he would develop. So a lot of times it's a little bit of wait and see as the child matures, as the child grows, because there is a lot of delay in walking, delay in getting up from a sitting position that it could be a normal variant if there's some other underlying conditions and not necessarily Duchenne's. So it is an odyssey that the family struggle and go through. And it is very similar now as it is 10, 20 years ago. Very interesting that you bring up the wait and see approach. And one of the questions I really had was, you know, now in this field, we have a couple of approved therapies, mainly exome skipping agents, but we also have, you know, corticosteroids and things of that nature. But has there been ever an experience you've had in your clinic where you have adopted this wait-and-see approach with a patient to advise him to wait to get treatment? So for the exon skipping therapies, those are oftentimes, once the patient is diagnosed, you can give it immediately. The average age of diagnosis in Duchenne muscular dystrophy in the U.S. is about four years of age. So that is the right time for any therapy to be implemented. Now, in some cases where the child is diagnosed at a much younger age, whether it be there's a family history or mom's genetic mutation is known, then in those instances where the child has been diagnosed at a much younger age group, there, there's really not a lot of data available to say, if they're diagnosed at two months of age, do we begin exon skipping therapy? I think there's some emerging data that would be helpful for clinicians like ourselves. But I think that the theory is that the sooner you give it, the more benefit the patient will receive. Um, however, there isn't clear data to convince us of that. The other therapy that has been approved for Duchenne patients are, is uh, the steroid treatment. And with that, oftentimes clinicians and family tend to hold off until the child is a little bit older to minimize some of the endocrinology side effects and consequences later on. And I think it's a very similar in the case of Duchenne uh, as well, where, you know, we have had a story of exon-skipping agents which received approval. But when these first sort of came to, be, came to the market, you know, parents' carers had to feel very hopeful about these uh, therapies. But how impactful have they turned out to be uh, over the intervening years? That was very instrumental in providing an open door effect to a number of other sponsor industry regulatory agencies and even investors to come in and say, wow, this is a worthwhile condition and worthwhile space to look into and to invest. Currently, we have about 50 clinical trials, if not more, is focusing on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. With the approval of the first exon skipping therapy, it literally paved the way for the subsequent exon skipping therapy 
and the conduct of the study and how to present it to regulatory agency, what kind of data needs to be collected, what kind of outcome measure needs to be collected. It's tremendous in, in what it has done for the community. And since the first two now, there has been five approved Duchenne muscular dystrophy therapy out there. You know, even despite having five currently approved therapies, the work continues. There's still a lot of work to be done. None of the approved therapies have shown to are proven to be curative, meaning that, you know, you give it one time and the condition theoretically should go away. So some of these exon skipping therapies and some of these approved therapies are available and they provide benefits to the patient by prolonging their ability to ambulate and to continue to walk later into their life. It helps with cardiac and pulmonary function. And ultimately, our hope is that it can prolong patients' life expectancy. In some ways, I think that these kind of exon skipping therapies and some of the currently approved therapies are kind of paving stones that you just need to step on until you get to that kind of the magic bullet, the, the gene therapy or whatever the curative agent would be that would hopefully take away the condition altogether. Over the course of next year, we are going to see a massive shift in the treatment landscape, and that's the uh, anticipated approval of Cereptus gene therapy, which is on the horizon. What are your thoughts on the use of this treatment in patients, and what could it mean for the families of Duchenne? Yeah, I think it, it's exciting because this is where everyone wants to be, right, is to receive a therapy that would be curative for their child. I think Sarepta has moved quite quickly ahead and have dosed a substantial amount of patient, number of patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and that gene therapy. So I think if and when FDA approved this gene therapy, I think it would be another monumental feat for the community, for the Duchenne's community, simply because we're, the, the condition was identified almost over 50 years ago, and now we're just barely scratching the surface in terms of treatment. And with the approved treatment in gene therapy, it's similar to the exon skipping therapy. It then opens the door for other company to consider, hey, this is a good space to be looking into and to participate. And even with Sarepta, they're, they're not the only one that is in the gene therapy space at this time. There's a number of others that are also paving the way as well. So I think that with approval of any gene therapy from any company, it's a huge mark for, for our community and, and the condition of Duchenne. You talk about you know, multiple companies developing gene therapies. Are there any differences in terms of what it means for the patient for the different gene therapies? So there are a number of gene therapy companies out there. The major difference between all of them, maybe with the exception of CRISPR, is the, the size and the construct of the gene that has been used. And of course, also the viral vector that's been used to carry these gene pieces. So that's the biggest difference between various gene therapy. It's hard to, at this point, compare one to another to say, well, this is better because it has certain gene construct. Right now, we're kind of early on and observing and, and monitoring and comparing the 
different benefits from different companies. I think the biggest worry that we have is the response of the child's body toward these gene therapy that's administered. It can be catastrophic. And we know that there has been several deaths related to gene therapy in the Duchenne space. So we know that the inherent risk is there and the catastrophic consequences of your immune response to these gene therapy could be looming. So I think it's promising, but there's always, you know, you you kind of walk on eggshell in some ways and hoping that you're not getting into trouble. Absolutely. I do want to pick up on your points about, you know, what we have seen are multiple fatalities, unfortunately, across different clinical trial programs. You know, the one which, speaking of AAV gene therapies, most recently comes to mind was Pfizer's, I think, the early phase trial at the back end of 2021. Do you think the community has been hesitant to use the gene therapy approach since then? I think there may be some hesitancy at first, but I think the promise of gene therapy being a curative agent is still always there and the hope is always there, not only for the family, the patient, but also for clinicians as well. We all know how detrimental and how severe these boys can get over time. And the fact that losing ambulation at an early age and life limiting to early 20s to 30s is not really a desirable outcome, right? So there's always a hope that there is a cure. There's always a hope that there is an effective treatment that could eliminate this condition. So I think, yes, the hesitancy is there and and there's kind of the proceed with caution signs around, but I think the hope and the desire to get rid of this condition is still, is always available and, and always present. And I think that's what pushing forward a lot of these companies and this initiatives from other investors and clinicians for us to continue to work on it. Absolutely. And because only this goodwill is there, and I think, you know, Pfizer, to their credit, did make many protocol updates to their trials, more closely at patients, pre- and post-dosing, as well as, yeah, I think, scaling back the use of immunosuppressant that they're using. How were these sort of updates received by the community? I think it's, it's a positive thing. You learn from your mistakes, right? So with the death of one patient in the Pfizer study, they regrouped put the study on hold for a good year, almost two years. And what are the challenges? What are the reasons why the serious adverse events occur? And regroup and modify the protocol so that it's safe for patients so that we can hopefully predict and anticipate some of the challenges that we see. So I I think that it's not only a learning experience for the sponsor, but it's also for us as clinicians and the clinical team as well. But I think it's necessary and I think it's it's absolutely an absolute must. You cannot continue on when you see something as catastrophic as a death of a patient due to a condition because they're receiving gene therapy. There was another news uh, late last year, and this was around the uh, cure disease and the use of uh, first use of CRISPR uh, gene editing uh, in addition patient. And I think the patient who passed away in this particular trial was the brother of the founder of this organization, Cure Disease. Uh, and this was only a one-person uh, trial. 
which was approved by the FDA. And only, I think, this patient did pass away within three months of this uh, trial getting started. Could you speak to the factors in terms of what led the FDA to approve a one-patient trial within Duchenne? I may not have all of the details and information on, on reasoning and logic behind that. It could be that it is first in human, it's first ever patient and first ever human to receive this therapy. And with any kind of gene therapy, theoretically, the effect is permanent, right? So it's not like any other drugs where if you see a side effect and you said, wait a minute, this is not nothing that we were hoping for and this is not anticipated. It's unexpected, and therefore we will stop the medication. And once you stop the medication, it gets washed out from your system and you go back to normal life. With gene therapy, everything is permanent, theoretically, right? So that's the reason why all of the gene therapies currently approved or not approved or in clinical trials are one-time dosing. So I, I, what I'm trying to say is that I, I don't know what the logic behind FDA one-person approval, but I assume that it, it's because it's a permanent therapy and they want to monitor closely the side effects. And also it's because it's a first-in-human gene trial that utilizing CRISPR technology. You think some of the, well, some of the existing shortcomings of AV-based gene therapy is really the body's immune response. Do you think CRISPR manipulation or stem cell-based approaches could overcome the limitations of AFE-based gene therapy? With CRISPR therapy, the thought of it is that it's precision medicine, meaning that it's precisely cut the right amount of gene at the right location and nothing more, nothing less, and insert similar gene segment that would replace the mutated or defective gene that has been cut out. So in theory, that's how it should be. In an ideal world, in a perfect world, that's how it should be. We cannot predict, however, the consequences of, let's say, if they miss a base pair, if they miss a an amino acid, and how would that work? And if they miss a segment, what is the downstream effect of that error in gene editing? We, we still don't know. There's been some proposed theory that it can trigger an oncogene as a downstream effect, causing oncological consequences that we, we don't know about. And if it doesn't, what happens if the cutting segment is not correct? What other gene has it activated or suppressed that could be essential to your daily functioning or your cell functioning. So I think all of those are consequences that we, at this time, are not entirely clear about. You know, with gene therapy, it's a self-insertion utilizing vector virus, mechanical benefit. So I think there's, there's a number of different mechanistically challenges on, on both CRISPR and, and the traditional gene therapy replacement that we encounter. And when you talk about, you know, potentially having a curative treatment available for patients in this community, I assume with, with that, it brings new challenges in terms of new phenotypes for patients. Could you speak to how these phenotypes are evolving as new treatments become available? Of course, yes. In the space of spinal muscular atrophy, the gene therapy and some of the therapy that are available 
Of course, it changes the natural history of the condition. In Duchenne, it does in some ways modify the natural history and natural progressions of some of these patients who are receiving therapy. However, it doesn't have quite the curative and just completely abolish the condition as you wish for it to do. But it does change the progression. It does change the natural history for these patients. And it, you know, by providing longer life expectancy, by providing longer periods of embolation, all of those definitely altered the natural history and changed the phenotype of Duchenne patients but not as drastic as you would imagine in some of the other rare conditions. The gene therapies overall are looking at the ambulatory population between the four to seven-year-olds, which makes sense because this is a stage you can have the most impact. What uh, other patient groups should be doing, or should we be doing more uh, for, and uh, which approaches sort of hold the most promise? I, I think what you're asking is, what is the, since gene therapy is now focusing on the ambulatory patient, what is the patient advocacy group and community doing to promote research in other non-ambulatory population? Okay, we, we've come a long way. I think that about 10 years ago, yes, that's all we focus on. Even if it's not, not even talking about gene therapy, but with exon skipping, that's all we focus on because there is a concrete show of improvement, right? You're typically lose emulations on average by 10 to 12 years of age, and now you're able to prolong that. So it's really clear and nicely defined. And a lot of the outcome measure are based upon how long do you walk in the six-minute walk test, how fast you can go up and down the four stair climb, your 10-meter walk and run, the North Star Miller toys. So it's more of time and distance measurements, right? So once you're rendering and lose your ability to emulate, a lot of those function outcome measures are not necessarily applicable for the non-ambulatory patients anymore. So it makes it really challenging for the pharmaceutical companies and sponsor to fully identify what is meaningful ways that we can measure in the non-ambulatory patients so that we can show that our, our therapy works. And so I, I think now that we've had imaging modalities such as MRI, functionality of cardiac MRI, pulmonary function tests that we can continuously measure. And so I think with all of those, we, we are now able to identify meaningful outcome measure that would be utilized in a non-ambulatory group as compared to the ambulatory group. So I think that we're now gaining some tractions in a non-ambulatory patient. So before 10 years ago, there was no clinical trials in non-ambulatory patients. Currently, we have a good handful of those. So I think it's encouraging that we're now not only focusing on the ambulatory patients, but also on the non-ambulatory patients as well. But I think, I suspect that a lot of the challenges comes from how do you identify meaningful and effective and validated outcome measures in a non-ambulatory patients. Speaking on the point of collaboration between different groups, one of the things we have seen from FDA is guidance on patient-focused drug development and really focus on patient centricity. So when we look at patients and also physicians and the innovators in the companies, what are the areas of biggest disconnect between these groups and what could we do more uh, as a community? 
what is unique about the rare patient rare disease community is that it's rather a close-knit community. I think with the invention of internet and social media platform and applications, it really connects people around the world. So we would have patients who are from a different country who is friends with someone locally. And I think that is really meaningful. And not only to connect people around the world, but also allow for them to have open communication, sharing of information, and comparing of information as well. So if one family says, well, I'm thinking about participating in this trial, what do you guys think? Are there any side effects? And presumably, there should be someone in the group that have some insight or even have a child who's in that study. So I think that not only connect the families, but also share information amongst the family. But it also, on the flip side of that, it also connects the patients with their patient advocacy group, right? So if the patient advocacy group, let's say it's in the U.S. and this newly diagnosed patient is in the U.K. or, you know, in, in some other faraway country, they could potentially reach out to patient advocacy group and receive resources and receive support electronically, virtually, without having to physically be in person at, at the patient advocacy group conference room or office to meet them in person. So I think with the events of technology, it definitely creates a cohesive, close-knit community for the patient and patient advocacy group. Now, in, in the case of rare disease, they are immensely important because we don't have thousands and millions of patients that we look to for input and for data. We have a small set of patients. And so the, the larger and the more people who are involved, the better it is for everyone. So only not only for the patient, but also for pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs, but also for clinicians like us, because we learn from patients. So if we can learn from 100 patients, even though they're worldwide, it's better than learning from five locally. So I think it benefits everyone, and we do collaborate closely. And like we always say in rare disease space, everyone knows everyone. <laughs> and it's true. What are the things we could do more of in the future? What are you most excited by? What changes do you uh, really feel will be the most transformative in this field going forward in the next uh, to do five years. Sure. Well, I think I think the most exciting thing now is is gene therapy, right? Because it gives you the promise and the hope that it would cure the condition. I, I think we still have a bit of a challenge and, and some obstacle to overcome, but I think the fact that it's out there, it's been given to a number of patients and it's now on its way for FDA to approve, that's huge. And a Duchenne's patient now it's not the same patient compared to 10 years ago, not only with the current research, but also development of treatment guidelines, right? Because then that will help to inform and educate clinicians like myself. When do we need to refer patients to pulmonology? When do we need to get them to see cardiology and obtain an echocardiogram? So I think in parallel, not only are we working on effective treatments and hope that there will be a cure but in the meantime, there are published guidelines and treatments that would be helpful and resourceful for 
family and for us to navigate through this together. So I think the future is great. And I think that approval of gene therapy will be in the near future for all of us. So I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm keeping my finger crossed. Thank you so much for that very informative discussion, Dr. Pan, um, and hope we can speak with you again in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you.